This is Talkback Gardening with John Lamb and Deb Tribe on ABC Radio Adelaide, South Australia and Broken Hill. Good morning and welcome to Talkback Gardening wherever you're listening around the beautiful state of South Australia and the Silver City of Broken Hill. It's not just you and me today, is it John Lamb? We've got Brett Draper, our guest pre-Christmas gardener in the studio. Yes, good morning, Deb, and good morning, gardeners, and an opportunity to say Merry Christmas, and to help us say Merry Christmas, as you suggested, we've got assistance in the form of Brett Draper, horticulturalist, garden centre manager. Good morning to you, Brett, and uh, Merry Christmas to you, and also our gardeners. Yeah, Merry Christmas to you, John. I feel like the little elf here today. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's always nice to have a little Christmas helper in the studio, that's all I can say. Um, And of course, I'm going to give you uh, the opportunity to take one of the ABC Gardening Australia magazines a little bit later in the program. We've got three to give away, two by phone. The phone number is 1300 222 The text line 0467922891. And love your calls. We've got quite a few people waiting to have a chat to both of you, but a couple of conversations you'd like for good gardeners this morning as well, John. Yes, later. Uh, Brett will come in with some suggestions for Christmas gifts, but... New Age products, if you go into your garden centre, there's a wide range of products there to help you grow plants and protect plants. And they've been out there for quite some time. But you'll notice that the range is increasing and there are products, what I term, New Age products. New Age products. They're not necessarily new products. They might have been there for some time. But they're New Age simply because of their mode of action. Now, traditionally... Uh, products that control insects have been uh, toxic. They poison, and that's their mode of action. These New Age products are different. They control the host, they control the problem, but they do not involve destroying either uh, you or I, your pets, the environment, uh, uh, even uh, what's going on in the soil. It's their mode of action, and and, and, uh, we won't go into why that's happening, but there's been grower concern, gardener concern, about uh, the use of toxic materials, and so the chemicals of companies have reacted by producing uh, products which still work, they're effective, and often they're as effective and sometimes more effective than organic products. So we're going to take a look at some of these new... New Age products, bearing in mind they're not new products, New Age products. And we're going to talk, first of all, with Brett Draper about that, because, um, Brett, you're at the uh, firing edge there. You're responsible for saying, hey, listen, are you aware there's a new product out there? It's worth trying. What would you suggest would be a typical New Age product? Look, uh, John, probably one of the best New Age products um, for chewing insects, for instance, particularly caterpillars and things in gardens, would be your Success Ultra, um, which is which has been around for a little while, but it's it's not widely known, um, and it's quite an, it's quite amazing when people come in and they've got you know damage on on particular plants, and they think, well, you know, what can I actually spray on there now? Um, your, your Success Ultra is um, a product which has an active called uh, Spinatrum, which um, is actually derived from a natural soil bacteria and it controls um, uh, lots of, of chewing insects on, on veg. Well, you can use it on a whole range of things, vegetables and ornamentals. Um, but the really good thing about it is it's translaminar. So when you spray it onto the top of the leaf, it actually moves through to the underside of the leaf because a lot of these little uh, critters and pests are not always on show. They're not always on the top of the leaf. They might be feeding underneath. And, and some of your other, um, say, softer chemicals like a pyrethrum, for instance, which is um, more of a contact killer, you spray it on the top you may miss that actual control of that particular pest so by moving through and it stays in that leaf and gives you some protection for quite some time um, and um, it is something that when we have for instance when we have customers that come into the garden center um, uh, and, and with a mobile phone these days they can keep give us some really really good photos of what's going on as soon as we identify the fact that it's a chewing insect um, um, and not a sap-sucking insect, we will often recommend something like Success Ultra because we know it's targeted specifically for that particular pest without it having an impact on other beneficial insects and other things in the environment. That's interesting because many people, they would say, right, oh, we've got to have it organic, we'll go to pyrethrum. Now, from my point of view, pyrethrum is effective 
not for long. It, it disappears very, very quickly. Mm, mm. But it is not selective. Pyrethrum will not only kill off the insect you're trying to kill, it'll knock off all the predators, all the goodies as well. How does Success Ultra go in terms of not only killing the host, but looking after the environment? Well, so John, if so, because it's targeted at those chewing insects, a lot of your predatory insects are not necessarily chewing insects. They'll be there because they're there to control other, other pests in the environment. So whether it be a hoverfly, whether it be a ladybird or a ladybird um, larvae, or whether it be a lacewing or something like that, might still be active in the area. But because it's not specifically chewing on the leaf, it's not actually going to be picked or killed if you like, buy that particular product. All right, and probably the only uh, thing to be aware of is you wouldn't spray it uh, on when the insects, say bees, if bees are active, you wouldn't spray when the bees are active, but if you wait until the bees have gone to sleep later in the afternoon or when the plant, is, the chemical is dry, no problems. Absolutely, John, and that's what we suggest to, to, to anyone that's concerned about bees and other pollinators is to wait for later in the day when they've stopped foraging for the day and that way the, reduce is, uh, the, the actual risk is reduced even further. All right. Well, that's a very fascinating one and one that gets a lot of mention on this particular program. Um, another one that probably comes to your mind that maybe people should be aware of and probably it should be and could be in their garden shed. Yeah, look, another one is for, for lawn beetle control and particularly the curl grub, which damage um, um, their lawns. And we've noticed after the rain, there's actually been quite an increase of, of people coming into the garden centre with damage to their lawn from lawn grub. Um, and that is um, Excelloprin, your Excelloprin, um, which um, is a it's it's specifically targeted at um, at lawn grub, and it actually um, has the ability to protect or break the life cycle, if you like, of the the, the lawn beetle. Because what happens is the the lawn beetles themselves, the African black beetles, which can be black or a light brown colour, lay eggs in the lawn. Those eggs develop. The larvae or the curl grub, which does all of the damage to your lawn, actually eats eats um, the root system of your lawn and you have these large brown patches that appear. That's the symptoms, but often people don't realise what's what's going on until it's too late. Well, your Acceloprin um, has a long, longer-lasting effect which for up to six months, which breaks that life cycle of those eggs hatching and therefore protects the lawn. Some of your older lawn beetle treatments, you had to apply four, five, mm. six times throughout the season, so you're constantly putting out these chemicals the whole time, whereas you, your, your newer ones are actually just targeting and you, uh, one application usually covers you for the whole season. It's got that name, Acelaprin, and it's A C E L E P R Y N, Acelaprin. Acelaprin, uh, yeah. Only one company has got that, so what's the brand name? Um, it's uh, Lawn Grub and Beetle Protect. Lawn grub and beetle protect. Beetle protect. Yeah, it was a commercial product which has become available domestically now. Um, so it's it's one of those advancements as technology has developed. Oh, that's right. A lot of these are, are widely used by uh, ho- co- commercial horticulturalists, and and what is happening is uh, some of the bigger companies, home garden companies, are saying we need to get this available, and they'll have it registered, uh, and and is now becoming available to home gardeners. Lots of home gardeners right now looking to get their gardens ready for Christmas, and a very good gardener and a friend of this program is Colette from Clearview. Welcome, Colette. Good morning, team. Um, I'm standing here watering my natives and looking at my front vegetable garden with aquilegia and cosmos and cornflowers and calendula and zucchinis going mad. Lots of tomatoes, none of them ripe, but anyway. Now, I have two rescue Daphnes, one three years old and one I bought last year with one flower on it. The rescue one only had one flower when I bought it and last year went ballistic just covered in flowers and now it's gone into full growth mode do you prune them what do you do with a daphne um Colette, yes, you, you, you can prune them if, if they need pruning. I mean, if, if it's gone into growth mode, that's good because often people don't uh, have an issue with them actually going into growth mode. Often they just sit there and, and don't do a lot. So what I would suggest, it sounds like that it's, that it's really happy and it's really healthy if it's gone into growth mode. Um, um, what I would suggest is maybe just giving a light, uh, a light tip prune when it gets to the size and the shape that you're happy with and that will encourage then um, new development of um, of flower shoots to, to actually come through. So that, again, changes the hormone balance in the plant and it just puts it back into flowering mode rather than into growth mode. 
Okay, how big do they grow, Brett? Depends on the variety, to be honest. Um, they can get quite. Some of them can get quite large. Um, so, so I've seen some up to a meter and a meter and a half. But most people, you'll find maybe fifty to seventy-five centimeters. Oh, okay then. I'll just leave it in the pot, and they can just do their thing. Yeah, and a pot <laughs> a pot will re- will reduce its vigor and its size anyway. It hasn't so far, I can tell you. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you very much. Merry Christmas to you all. Thank you, Colette, and uh, same to you also. Trish is in Modbury Heights. Now, Trish, you've got a 20-year-old peach tree. What's happening to the fruit this year? Good morning, everybody, and Merry Christmas. Um, my beautiful peach tree, the peaches have got sap oozing out of them. Not all of them, but quite a few of them. Do I pull them off and chuck them? Do I... Well, it depends what? on uh, if they are nearly mature and they look like they're going to ripen, despite the fact they've got a bit of ooze uh, on the surface, uh, I'd leave them and, and let them uh, uh, ripen and then cut out the oozy bit, <laughs> then probably make stewed peaches or something like that. Uh, okay, so they're still okay to eat. Yeah, uh, what uh, I think we need to come back is what's caused it. In the last probably six weeks, we've had a lot of people ringing up and sort of saying, I've got a harlequin bug, a little bug. Uh, It's actually a true bug. It comes, flies in, and it actually sits on fruit, and it loves stone fruits in particular. It stings it, and the tree is actually trying to protect that little area from getting a rot by putting gum there, and that's what you're seeing is oozing out. Sometimes you'll find that uh, it's not successful and it will go rotten. But it, the problem has been harlequin bug. I think there's probably no problem in doing, no point in doing anything at the moment. The harlequin bugs have come and gone, and uh, you just keep an eye out them for next year and, and implement your control very early in the growing season. Uh, in terms of the edibility, um, it, so long as the fruit hasn't gone rotten, it's quite okay to use. Okay. And how do you control a harlequin bug? And- uh, <laughs> you need to uh, observe when they're uh, available, when they fly into the tree. Um, and from my point of view, um, there are lots of chemicals out there which will knock them off, but probably the most effective is uh, your bathroid, a uh, bathroid advance. Bathroid is low toxicity. Um, it is uh, uh, very good at controlling, uh, very difficult to control insects such as harlequin bugs. A lot of the chemicals you use won't control a harlequin bug, but a bathroid will. And I think when you see the first of the insects moving in, that's the time to spray. And if you get them early before the population uh, builds up, you'll find you'll get pretty good control. So when should Trish keep an eye out for harlequin bugs? Oh, that'll bugs? happen probably uh, next, maybe uh, uh, late October, uh, early November is usually when they fly in. They're out there in the grass. As the grass dries off, they come into your garden, and that's usually when the problem occurs. One for the garden, Dory. Trish, thank you very much for that call. And speaking of lawns, uh, Robin uh, says, I thought Christmas beetles lived in lawns. Will they be impacted by the spray that you were talking about, Brett? Yeah, look, they, they could be, unfortunately, and that is one of the, um, I guess, the consequences of, of using a product. Um, um, so we... we what I would suggest, and we always suggest this to customers, don't use the product for the sake of using it. Only use it when and if you have a problem and it's a problem that you can't tolerate any longer <laughs> because some people can tolerate some damage to their lawn from lawn beetle, for instance, but when it gets to the point where you have um, a, a, a lawn which you might spend a lot of time, effort and money in producing being absolutely destroyed, you want to do something about it. Um, so um, it, it really comes back to, you know, as I said, only use the product as recommended and when it's required to be used, and that way you will, you will reduce the risk. But unfortunately, it doesn't distinguish between beetles. They do affect all beetles if they're active in that area. Okay. Um, Doug at Port Hughes says, I've found all of my fruit pr- uh, trees, peaches are finished, apricots and nectarines one week away, and the garden in general is all about four to five weeks early. I've been eating tomatoes for five weeks, cherry varieties, all self Sown. Thanks, Doug. Uh, Steve says, I've picked two larger tomatoes already and a few cherry tomatoes in Port Elliot. Uh, lots of flowers and tomatoes on bushes that are a bit hungry, looking for water, but looking okay. Thank you, Steve. Uh, and 
I've been getting tomatoes for weeks, says this texter. I have self-sown capsicums coming up. Joanne from Wyala. P.S. I had a corgi crossed with a red healer, Winnie. She was a fantastic dog. <laughs> so a few people voting for t- corgis this morning, John, like your lovely doggy. They're very, very popular. They're ideal, uh, I think, for uh, people that have got a small family and uh, don't want a big dog, but uh, it's a kind of a dog you can bring it inside or leave it outside. Oh, <laughs> have a lot of fun with it. We do. Uh, we love our four-legged friends. Friends, exactly. And thank you to Graham on a Hill. Lovely to hear from all of you. Our text line 0467 922 891. Tell us what sort of season your garden is having this year. Or text, uh, sorry, ring us, please, if you would like some advice from both Brett Draper and John Lamb in the chair in our pre Christmas Talkback Gardening special this morning. This is Talkback Gardening with John Lamb and Deb Tribe on ABC Radio Adelaide, South Australia and Broken Hill. And, of course, our special guest pre-Christmas talkback gardener, Brett Draper, is in the studio as well. Louise has called in from Flinders Park with an alder tree question. Good morning, Louise. Good morning, all. Yes, I have an alder uh, in my back garden, in my lawn. Um, it's been there over 25 years. And I'd like to know the optimum time to give it a good um, prune, trim, shaping, and and uh, how to go about that. Um, so, Louise, um, it's a, it's got too big and like too tall and too wide, or what sort of trimming it, do you it, need to do? What's the? Uh, it's I live in a masonette. It's a um, rectangular shaped block, and it's at, in the lawn at the end of my yard. Uh, it's probably about eight to ten metres from, or about eight metres from my um, back door, mm-hmm. and it's um, it's just too big. Too big, yeah, yeah. And so, are you looking at getting somebody in to do that rather than absolutely? Yeah. Oh, absolutely, yes. Yeah. Um, but I just want to know the optimum time. I've been listening again this morning about your discussions with regard to hormones within plants. And uh, I think I've heard it discussed before, but didn't hear the whole conversation about uh, hormones which are released, I think, when trees are pruned or yeah. something similar. And i just like to get the right information. Yeah, well, particularly uh, for, like, for deciduous trees, for instance, if they're pruned hard in their, um, in their deciduous mode, when they come into new growth as the season changes from winter to spring, they, go, they grow back very, very vigorously. Um, and um, and so by by pruning deciduous trees, for instance, um, in later in the season, and we were talking about fruit trees earlier, in we're giving them a light summer prune. It reduces that that vigor within the plant and means that they don't go back into strong growth mode um, in that okay, period of so time. My, so my alder is not deciduous. So how do, what applies to that? Yeah, it's growing. It's growing. It's, they grow all the time. So look, they um, do. Yeah. <laughs> it's beautiful. It's beautiful. But I just like to have it properly shaped and perhaps a little off the top it is a, a job for a professional yeah um but i haven't been able to establish what is the optimum time to do yeah, it yeah well look they, time I, of the year. I, I, I would suggest now autumn would probably be a much better time to do it rather than than coming i mean we will get some hot weather i'm sure at some stage we'll have a, a hot summer so an autumn prune would probably be a very sensible thing to do um and okay. it, it may come down to when you can actually get somebody to come in and do that as well but they they yep. will be able to look at it and 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 talk to them about what you want from the tree going forward and then they will be able to prune it accordingly okay and does it does pruning sort of automatically put it into more growth so will it be potentially something that i have to do annually or um well i mean if you've if you've, you've, you've had it established for quite some time now and it, it's taken that time to get to the size that it is so yes it will be probably something you need to do on a periodic basis but it probably won't be something you need to do every year so it might be every okay. five years that you might need to do some maintenance pruning too oh okay Oh, good. Thank you so much. Thank you for the call. Lovely to hear from you, Louise. Uh, Frosty says in relation to lawn grubs, I don't have lawn grubs. I put water out for the Maggies and they take care of the grubs. Very good. Thanks, Frosty. Uh, and Jamie McElwain, of course, uh, landscape gardener in South Australia, says our clients' gardens are for the most part growing really well with good soil moisture and warmth to sustain consistent growth. Beside a bit of cherry slug and an ever-increasing population of rabbits, we don't seem to 
have any major pest or disease issues at this stage. The productive gardens are a week or two behind, but having said that, I've picked tomatoes before Christmas, which I rarely do. Merry Christmas to all. Thank you, and Jamie. And a special Merry Christmas to Jamie for his contributions, regular contributions to Talkback Gardening. Absolutely. And thank you very much, Jamie. Uh, David is in Renmark. You've got a white fly problem, have you, David? Good morning. Mm. Yeah, good morning. Yeah, I've... Oh, it's just they seem to be endemic this year. White fly, you usually get them, you know, at the end of the season in autumn, but this year, I don't know, I've had them for about a month now. It's interesting. We haven't had many callers concerned about white fly, and then all of a sudden they're starting to come in quite regularly. Um, Right, I've got my own points of view on white fly. Perhaps before we take a look at that, uh, Brett, uh, somebody comes into the garden centre said there's white flies everywhere. Um, do you use a traditional chemical or is there a, a new age chemical out there? Yeah, look, there is, there is John. Um, and uh, one question we always ask is what are they on first? Because that's really important. We need to know what they're on first. Um, but yes, there is um, your potassium-based soap products. Um, and there's a couple on the market. They're, they're sold as Natrosoap or Ecofen. They're on the market. Um, and um, they work by, when you spray them, they work by, your white fly, uh, like many um, sap-sucking pests, are soft-bodied. So when you spray it on them, um, it desiccates them, it dries them out. So it, it works by, by drying them out, if you like, rather than actually poisoning them, which is good, and it's very effective at controlling white fly. Yes, and Ecofend and uh, the Natrosoap, they are, as you mentioned, uh, uh, they Potassium soaps, they're basically organic. They're based on uh, plant, mainly plants, the oils out of plants. Uh, they get the salts out of that and make it into a, a something, and it actually penetrates the skin of the insects, and uh, that's how it controls them. And uh, I'm surprised that there are only two products out there available to home gardeners at the moment. I think uh, the potassium soaps have got a big potential. It was one of the pro- new age products I was going to talk about, but I think you've covered it very well. Wonderful. David, does that answer your question? Uh, yeah, it certainly helps. Yeah, just out of, I've got them on beans, cucumbers, tomatoes, you name it. They yes, seem to be okay. everywhere, the, so. the only thing I would suggest is you need to be really mindful with your natrosoap that if it's a day of 30-plus degree weather, or weather, you need to apply them in cooler weather if you're going to do that because they can have an effect um, in the warmer weather, on the particularly cucumbers, for instance, on the foliage. Have you had any experience or customers' experience using uh, your spinosad on the, your uh, uh, insect on your vegetables to control white fly? The fact that it's translaminar and it's in there, uh, but it, it's it's specific for caterpillars, whether it has any effect on white fly. I haven't had a lot of impact. Uh, no, neither have I. No. Interesting. <laughs> <laughs> okay, let us know if you have zero four six seven nine double two eight nine one. Is the the text line, the phone line, call in if you'd like advice from both John and Brett Draper, our two talkback gardeners for our pre-Christmas show. The number is 1300 891. Thank you for that call, David. George is in Hawker. George, welcome to the program. What's happening with your passion fruit? Oh, good morning, team. And um, Deb Tribe had a little lamb. That's all I can ah, say. Ah, um, thank you. George. <laughs> um, I've got a I've got a passion fruit vine. I think it's depressed. I think it's got an attitude problem, and it's in sort of. It's I'm out on the station, and the soil is not 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 one hundred percent. But it, it's not uh, it's not responding to my kindness and my morning talks. And I'm just wondering what, what I can give it to gee it up. I thought about a glass of sherry for Christmas, but I don't think that's going to work. Um, I think that would probably help you a little bit, uh, <laughs> yeah, George. But, uh, as for the passion fruit, could you give us a description of what it looks like? How vigorous is it and the colour of the leaves, both the old leaves and the young leaves? Well, the, the old leaves are sort of yellowed off a bit, uh, John, and the, the new, there's a little bit of regrowth, but it's not, you know, I've grown passion fruit before and it's just responded brilliantly, but um, it's, and I've, you know, given, given it a drink of sea salt and a bit of this and some sheep dung, uh, which there's no shortage of up here, I can promise you. Um, and uh, it's just, it's just, just middling along, you know, it's just not pr- pr- progressing as much as I would have thought it would have. When the new tips come out, are they a very, very light green, or are they quite a, a dark, are they a, a normal, natural, darker green? No, they're a rich green, John, and which is the thing. But it's it just seems to be going ever so slowly. And um, 
one's a bit like me, I suppose. <laughs> yeah, right. Uh, and it's 20 questions, and we could go on for a little bit, but uh, um, you mentioned that the older leaves are going uh, yellow, and uh, my first thought is, oh, that's lack of nitrogen. Um, but right, uh, yep. then the fact that you sort of said the new tips are, are not light green, they're dark green, uh, that's not a, a lack of nitrogen. So it could be the older leaves are just old and they're coming off, and uh, there are other factors there. Um, I think it's a matter of looking at the uh, passion fruit itself. Passion fruit have surface roots and they spread. They don't grow deep, they grow wide. Mm. And it's important that you have, you've got good soil, lots of chicken, uh, not uh, sheep manure there in the topsoil, but it needs to be uh, uh, making sure that you've got uh, 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 probably uh, a, a basin where you can actually put in water. And once you've got it established, you probably should be putting on maybe 20 or even 30 litres of water and give it a deep water. But that water needs to be spread, not concentrated in a square yard, probably over maybe two or three square yards. Because if you keep the root system happy, you've got more roots uh, interacting with what's going on in the soil, pumping up their nutrients and moisture into the leaves. The leaves are then reacting with the sunlight. You should then get action, and I'd be disappointed right. if you don't. So I think look after the root system, and the, uh, uh, that should look after the, your passion for it. Right, I think you're spot on because I've been watering too centrally located around the base of the plant, so I need to spread it out a bit and uh, and have a glass of sherry while I'm doing <laughs> that. <so. laughs> Look after the garden and the gardener, George. <laughs> Thanks Thank you for- very much, Emma. Merry Christmas, gang. Thank you. Merry Christmas to you also. And thank you for your text. Chris Butler from Roseworthy says, Garden growing like a bunch of triffids. Tomatoes from last year fruiting, but this year's very slow to fruit and ripen. Lemon tree going pale. Fertilised citrus and water in well. Merry Christmas to you too, Chris. And it's lovely to hear from our regular contributors mm. to Talkback Gardening. Chris Butler, of course, agronomist from Roseworthy, looks after the farmers, but also shares information specifically on weed control, brilliant information on home garden weed control as well as lovely other uh, comments Thank you. Merry Christmas to you, Chris. Thank you. And on that, if any of our regular contributors to Talkback Gardening are listening, a huge thank you. Oh, absolutely, yes. I think one of the lovely joys of this program is having that uh, uh, plethora of experts out there and to be able to say, oh, this is the problem this week. This is the person we can have into the studio and tell you all about it. So exactly Merry right. Christmas and thank you. I could not agree more and, uh, and we really appreciate it. Sharing your expertise and your love for gardening uh, with everybody. We really love it. Uh, Kathy is in Overingham. Uh, Kathy, you've got some onion aphids on your chives. <laughs> Sounds dangerous. Good morning. Well, yes, it could be if you try to chomp through them. Um, they're very, they're little black aphids. Are, um, an app identifies them specifically as onion aphids. I don't really have aphids on much else there's normal little green aphids occasionally on the roses nearby but they're thick um i've uh, we've got chives growing as a as a border um as well as you know they're decorative as well as edible so i've tried some of these new age um uh, insect controllers when you say new age could you sort of mention which ones well um i think it was one of the potassium um, the potassium soap soaps, one. okay. Yes. Eco yes. or Nature's Way? Nature's Way, I think it was. Okay. I haven't the packet just in front of me, but um, that brings a bell. No, no. Um, did, did it knock, that, what, what actually happened? Did it knock off the aphids and more came back? or? Uh, well, it didn't really knock them totally off, um, but certainly uh, more come back, have come back. And I've progressed to using um, pyrethrum sprays, which sort of knocks them back a bit and everything else out yeah, well that's right that's right, that's right. <laughs> that's i mean right. we've got plenty of bees and hoverflies and lovely native things around yeah. so i'm very cautious about what i can use yeah. okay the, the, the problem of course is uh, the chives and onions uh, they have a, a waxy kind of a, a coating on them and it's getting the material to actually stick on to the, them so you're getting a quick knockdown effect with your potassium salts but uh, then uh, that doesn't last for very long. Um, maybe uh, uh, 
uh, what, I don't know, what would you suggest there? Uh, well, look, the, yeah, the, look, the black aphids on chives are, are quite diffi- difficult to control, and and usually um, one one spray doesn't control them. Um, you're right, John. It, it, because of because of the coating on the on the leaves, that, that, that the the product doesn't hang around. So it usually can can um, requires a couple of sprays, probably a week apart or ten days apart, depending on the variety, mm. to actually control them completely. Um, the other thing that I've found is actually um, cleaning them off. Um, I know that sounds um, um, te- a bit of a tenuous sort of task, but when you af- after a spray and you've still got some there, if you actually um, uh, um, wipe the, the, the actual um, aphids off the actual plant, you can actually remove quite a large population very quickly um, without spraying them, um, which, is, which is a good thing to do. Um, um, and you're right. Look, you mentioned pyrethrum. I've had quite a bit of ex- um, uh, experience with the, the chives, um, the aphids on the chives, and I found that pyrethrum has actually worked quite well. I know it does have an impact on other, um, another, you know, pests in the area, but it does actually knock them off the chives quite quickly. Yeah. What worries me is aphids. Uh, there are a lot of predators out there. A little parasitic wasp in particular, and. Uh, uh, Pyrethrum is deadly on those little uh, uh, predatory wasps and, and some of the other good ones, which is why I do have a, a bias against them. Um, uh, the other area, I suppose, is because uh, the chemical uh, runs over the plant and runs off, uh, you can actually buy what they're called spreaders. You can buy a little bottle of, of material and you add with your insecticide. They're not called spreaders. I can't think of the right word. Well, the, 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 yeah. there is a brand which is a wetter spreader. Wetter spreader. Yeah, wetter, which is, which is um, a product that you can add to um, to um, to help if you like break down that waxy coating right, on, on yes, the leaves that yes. are there um, and um, um, the best way to to describe them in layman's terms they're, they're, they're like a detergent but not a detergent so I'm not saying use a detergent but what they do is they help to break down that, that waxy coating right, which allows yes. the product to actually stick to the actual plant themselves. So that being the case the potassium salts or even sort of uh, the eco oils the oil sprays by using a spreader and and I think that even if you just use a little bit of a, a non non biodegradable detergent, just a half a teaspoon, and adding that to the material would actually assist and have the, have the same, or not the same, but a similar effect similar effect to, correct. To, yeah. to your yep. spreader. Mm-hmm. So I think uh, yeah, and, and it's just one of those unusual situations where it's it's a difficult plant, and uh, and you need to understand why it's difficult to control, mm-hmm. and you need to sort of use the technology to beat it. And, and the other thing is, John. And, and we get a lot of customers that come into garden centres um, and, and are conscious very much about the predatory insects that are there. But observation is the key. Often people will find that they might have a pest, in this case black aphids, but if they look closely and they can't see any evidence of the parasitic wasp or things that, um, or other predatory insects that are around there, um, often we'll look at giving a, a, a one spray to help control the numbers and bring Knock them the down under control. Down. Yep. And then once you've got a smaller population, it then allows the other beneficials to come in and then down the track clean them up. Yes, and that's the case. The pyrethrum might be effective for that simply because it doesn't last. It breaks down very, very quickly. Correct. So yep. spray today, it's gone tomorrow. Its effectiveness is gone tomorrow, but you've knocked the population down and achieved what you're suggesting. Yeah. Interesting question, Cathy. Certainly encouraged a lot of conversation there. Thank you very much for calling in. And uh, this, uh, Ian from Aldenga Beach rang through about George from Hawker's passion fruit problem and said he had exactly the same issues. He then noticed that rats had almost ring-barked the passion fruit, put an aluminium barrier at the base and the plant has come back nicely. Yeah, good observation there. So, George, if you're listening, maybe go and check that out as well. We are Talk Back Gardening, two for one today. John Lan and Brett Draper in the studio to answer your questions. Talk Back Gardening with John Lamb and Deb Tribe on ABC Radio Adelaide, South Australia and Broken Hill. And Brett Draper is here as well to help with your gardening questions. Thank you for your texts. Uh, Jay says, uh, sorry, Jenny says... Tomatoes, lettuce and myriad fresh herbs for Christmas in my kangaroo island garden. Happy Christmas. Same to you too, Jenny. Mike says, picked first tomato, 25 November, largest weighed 430 grams. Wow. (laughs) Four and a half inches in diameter, bushes laden. Mike, wow, that's amazing. And Jan says, we must be lucky. We have the best zucchinis this year in Mount Barker. So that's great, Jan. Thank you very much for letting us know. Let's head to Port Pirie. 
Henry now. David has a mature peach tree question. Welcome, David. Uh, good morning. Yes, I've got a, a mature Alberta peach that's flowered prolifically this year but has not set any fruit at all, really. Has it so only happened? Was that just only for this year? or has Yes, it, yeah, right just this year. Right. So it flowered. Did the fruit sort of start to set and drop, or did they just not form at all? I did see some little, uh, maybe uh, peanut-sized fruit in the flower, and I did see two or three fruit that might have got up to golf ball size. But generally, they just sort of withered on the tree almost. Do you recall when it was flowering, was it showery weather? No, I don't think so. <laughs> so, because I had, I've got a um, donut peach nearby. That's that's a massive uh, fruit, and I've got sapsuma plum the other side. That's got fruit on. So, it's just this Alberta peach that's giving me the the grots. All right, and have you got a lot of vigor there, or is it just a normal? Yep. Okay. Uh, I was going to suggest it's it's a pollination problem, and that's why I thought that if you had showery weather during flowering, uh, that would affect your pollination. Um, the fact that the uh, it's flowered and the flowers haven't set is to do with, I think, uh, uh, the pollination of that particular plant. And then if it's not related to weather, then I would come back to uh, uh, what Brett's been talking about a couple of times, is the hormone balance within the plant. And if you've got a plant which is growing down very, very vigorously, you'll find that even though it flowers and it might try and set fruit, uh, the balance for hormones for growth override the hormones for fruiting, and that causes the abortion of the fruit. Uh, and I think that could be your particular problem. Uh, maybe it's only happening this year. Uh, just don't over-fertilise the plant. I'd be waiting. Uh, have you got any fruit left? No, I can't find any fruit on it at all. <laughs> right, I was going to suggest anybody's got fruit on, uh, don't fertilise before the the harvest, but after harvest is a critical time for putting on your fertiliser, but that's a story for later on. So I suggest just, just don't over-fertilise, don't over-water, but don't let the plant stress, and I think maybe next year, is it another year? And next year, hopefully, you come in with lots of peaches. Beautiful. Thank you very much. <laughs> Thank you, David, for the call, and thank you for your lovely texts. Tony at Ross Trevor says, um, Tomatoes, for info, planted mid-September, Mighty Red, first prize and sweet bite, began harvesting each of them late November, early December, excellent setting and fruit. Possible difference this season was the use of complete mineral mix. Interesting. Good. Make sure you're writing this information down. We want it uh, uh, tabulated and sent to us as we do our tomato survey uh, later in the year. Exactly. So Next year, I should say. That's right, for 2024, so make notes in your gardening diary, Tony. Uh, Craig at Port Norlunga says, the bed has three cherry tomato plants in it. Never seen anything like it. There are hundreds of fruit in there and they're ripening. And Craig has sent through a photograph of very vigorous tomatoes there. Dino says, mild weather here in Sejuna, great growing conditions and the massive bees among my platypus gums are almost deafening and a beautiful photo sent there as well. Thank you, Dino. Lovely. Just around the corner, Helen in Collinswood said, have had tomatoes for weeks here in Collinswood (laughs) and a beautiful big dish has been sent through. Thank you so much for your lovely texts and photographs. Julie is in Selix Beach. Uh, Now, Julie, You've got a magnolia question. Good morning. Oh, hi there. Um, yes, I we've planted eleven magnolia evergreen magnolia trees. They're called Princess Cinderellas, and we planted them about four years ago. And they're all varying heights, some seven foot, and the, they're smaller ones, two or three. They're small, about four foot. And I wanted to know what to fertilise them and how often. And also where I can shape them, and time of year I can shape them. Yes, um, uh, you definitely can shape them. It was Julie, wasn't it, the caller? Yes, Julie, you can definitely shape them. Um, and um, you, you'll you find um, magnolias respond really, really well to tip pruning. If you tip prune them and do that while they're small rather than let them get too large, the plants will be much denser and much happier and, and certainly much healthier. Um, in terms of fertilising, um, it's very much um, a thing where you want to um, keep the soil as healthy as possible. So generally we would normally recommend an organic-based 
um, chicken manure um, pellet-based fertiliser. Um, and um, because magnolias um, like um, to be slightly acidic, well, they, they're a cooler climate plant which generally likes slightly acidic soil, if you use one of your organic-based fertilisers for azaleas and camellias, for instance, and there's a couple on the market, you'll often find that they'll respond much, much better to that. Um, and if you do it regularly right through the warmer months of the year, um, you know, just a, a, even on a monthly basis, a small amount on a monthly basis, but just ensure that it's put around the actual root zone of the plant. Don't put it at the trunk of the tree. Make sure you, make, you come out and put it out from around um, the root zone. And that's where you should be watering to, ideally. And a mulch would be good. If you haven't mulched them, look at mulching them as well because it does help to maintain the moisture in the soil and help keep the root system a little bit cooler, particularly during the summer months. And the, the magnolias will really thank you for it. Great question. Thanks very much, Julie. Good luck with your magnolias. Ellen is in Semaphore with a very mature, an 80-year-old mulberry tree. Hi, Ellen. Hi there. Yes, uh, sadly, we uh, we lost a massive limb off that tree during the week um, and it was loaded with fruit just about to uh, ripen, unfortunately. Uh, maybe just one, uh, one too many popped and then the whole branch just went... I'm just wondering, it, it's resting on the ground, but it's it was only over a couple of feet off the ground, um, and it's shattered. It's a one-metre circumference, the part that's, that broke. Is it possible to maintain that branch in any way, or is it best to just make a clean severing and... Uh, yeah, leave it at that. Yeah, as much as it's a nice thought to be able to maintain that branch, I don't think that's going to be possible. It will just need to be a, um, a clean break, if you like, a nice clean cut. Yeah. So if you can tidy um, that cut up um, on, on the tree, if that's possible. Has it split the trees or has or has it broken off? No, no, the tree, the tree itself's fine. Okay. And it's obviously got a massive root system and covered about 60 feet across, I reckon. Wow, yes, yeah, so, that's um, like a magnificent tree, absolutely. Yeah. What do you do with all the mulberries? Oh, we, we just put them in the, uh, you know, the, the takeaway containers and put them in the freezer and uh, we've got fr uh, berries all year. Absolutely. And we give a few to friends and family as well, of course. Yeah, they're delicious. Perhaps during winter you might look at the tree and just consider, does it need a little bit of reshaping? Do you think, Brett, uh, maybe uh, if uh, it'll be out of balance, one big branch from one side goes and it sort of becomes a bit lopsided. Mm. So uh, when it's uh, deciduous in the middle of winter, it might be a time to give it a bit of attention. Yeah, look, definitely, because it sounds like such a lovely tree, you want to ensure that the tree continues to survive. So you might need to do a little bit of maintenance pruning just to reduce some of the volume, if you like, because it might now find that the tree is out of balance um, and um, and g going back to where your breaks occurred if you can give that a nice clean cut that will give the, the tree the best chance of of um, healing or sealing that wound just to ensure that there is no further damage that occurs okay and is there anything you should paint on that that wound or don't do it don't do it <laughs> yeah I would, I would just i would just let if i would just let the tree uh, and nature take its course in that regard yes, last week or two weeks ago michael palamountan one of our top arborists saying look don't put material on cuts it's not needed and sometimes it can be more damaging than good yeah, the tree knows how to best look after itself and heal itself. Alan, excellent question. I hope your beautiful 80-year-old mulberry tree goes on for many more years. Ken is in Goolwa. Ken, you want to get rid of some dichondra in your garden. What's happening? Yes, it's proving to be uh, a little bit difficult, actually. Uh, it came in, I believe, in a pot plant, and it looked quite cute, so I just left it in the pot plant until I planted the, uh, the original plant that was in there. And anyway, it's got into the ground and it's taken off and I've tried uh, all the usual remedies to uh, get rid of it and it just laughs at glyphosate. And um, I've used the, uh, the new one on the market with the acid in it and that didn't seem to have any effect either. Yeah, it burns it off. What you need is to uh, use a broad-leafed weedicide. Um, there are two types of plants. They're either grassy or they're broad-leafed. And if you put on the chemicals, as you're mentioning, uh, they're not going to be very, very effective or uh, they'll just give you a quick fix. Um, you need a broad-leafed weedicide and it'll contain MCPA 
but probably by itself uh, you need a, something to soup it up a little bit and probably a mixture of MCPA and uh, probably uh, uh, bromoxynol or macacrop. Macacrop if you can get it. Macacrop is very good uh, for uh, spreading kind of plants and uh, because it's broad-leafed it'll knock off uh, uh, the leaves and it'll also get down into the root system. If you use a, a, a quick uh, th- knockdown like slasher it'll knock off the top but the bottom will come back again. So uh, an MCPA with uh, bromoxynol or uh, mecacrop, I think uh, just do it when it's not windy so you don't sort of spray anything else in the garden because other things in the garden are quite likely to be broadleafed as well. So just spray with care, but uh, you'll find that that's very, very effective. Okay, there's no um, names that you can give me at all, John? Oh, uh, if you just find, uh, if you go to uh, a garden centre and say, look, I want to knock off broadleaf weeds in the lawn, uh, they'll give you something that's got MCPA in it. Um, and uh, steer, steer away from uh, materials that have got uh, MCPA and dicamba. Dicamba is a chemical I don't like recommending simply because it can have an adverse effect on the roots of trees. Thank you, Ken. Now, if you haven't won anything from ABC Radio Adelaide in the last month and you would like to score yourself a December ABC Gardening Australia magazine, two ways to do it. You can call in now on one three hundred triple two eight nine one, or you can text on zero four six seven nine double two eight nine one. This is Talkback Gardening with John Lamb and Deb Tribe on ABC Radio Adelaide, South Australia, and Broken Hill. Many people love to head to the York Peninsula. Linda is in Port Vincent, and you'd like a recommendation, Linda, for a coastal tree. Good morning. Good morning. Yes, please. I think. Politely, I've been sold five cups, so I live um, 100 metres from the beach and um, I was advised by a garden centre to plant ornamental pears along the fence line um, for a nice barrier and I have seen them growing in Vincent in different areas, so I thought, great. Five years on or four or five years on, they're about a metre and a half tall, barely 20 centimetres in diameter and they just look like very expensive trees. I've put all sorts of fertiliser, etc., etc., on them, and I'm just about done. So, what I'm looking at is to possibly something like um, a, the Bahutakawa, the Maori Christmas tree. I've seen them growing in Vincent. Um, really keen to get flowering trees as a barrier, but really robust against. Um, the you know the, the closeness to the ocean and I also have um, the septic tank system within that area so I may be asking for a unicorn but that's what I'm looking <laughs> for. How many pear trees have you got? Oh five. Yeah well how about digging them up putting them in containers and getting them back into growth and giving them away to friends because they're I never going to so. be any good are they Brett no, I don't no. think so no not not from what you're suggesting and and I think too you've almost answered your own question by having a look at what's growing in surrounding gardens and in the area and that's actually doing well you know which what will actually perform in your soil and in your actual location because it sounds like you are quite close to the water that's there yes um, and the key will be to just ensuring that when prior to planting that you just um, um, uh, improve the soil as, as, as best you can with um, as much organic matter that you can work into the soil because I imagine it's probably lacking a fair bit of um, organic matter that's in there to give whatever you plant the best chance. Yes, and rather than having a deciduous tree, which doesn't give any protection during winter, look for evergreens, evergreens. That'll give you uh, um, a, a shield against the wind and, and, and the problem so that if you can protect your garden from those salt-laden winds, that'll make a, a significant difference. And uh, go take on board what Brad is saying and go to your local garden centre uh, or a local authority and they will tell you the names of plants which are evergreen uh, there are some eucalypts some excellent eucalypts which have got excellent tolerance mm. to coastal conditions mm. there's one or two of those uh, there are th- you know, the New Zealand Christmas bush the metrosidrus uh, is, is, is probably uh, an old-fashioned one which has uh, uh, got a good tolerance but there are plants out there that have got good tolerance that are evergreen will give you the protection you need 
Thank you, Linda. Was sold five pups there, unfortunately. And speaking of pups, Helen says, my late sister had two corgis called Josephine and Napoleon. Uh, picking up on your comment about your corgi, John. And congratulations to our ABC Gardening Australia magazine winners, Veronica in Brighton, Lynn from Urbray and Doug from Port Hughes. Thank you very much. Uh, Sonia, thanks you, John for your encyclopedic knowledge of all things that grow and wishes you a very happy Christmas. Heather at Hope Valley says, um, listening to talk about gardening has made her a better gardener and has picked the first two tomatoes, Mighty Reds, they're huge. She's very pleased, plus plenty of green beans, lettuce, radishes and Cape gooseberries. Yum, what an amazing assortment. And this lovely text came through from Laura saying, I grew up listening to Talk Back Gardening with my dad way before I was a gardener. Much later, after we had a catastrophic stroke, we'd listen together to the show as dad watched me tend his garden, these threads giving him insight into the man he was before the stroke. We had two more years with dad. Um, this year will be the second... Christmas without him. I garden now with my almost two-year-old son supervising. I listen each week to your show, recalling the precious times I had gardening with my dad. I'm getting, losing my composure here and the memories I'm now making with my own son in the garden. Isn't that lovely? That is the impact of Talk Back Gardening. That's what the program is about. It's about sharing information and just listening to people coming in with their comments and we learn so much from the listeners coming in with their comments as much as uh, is coming out from this end of the the, the studio with our guests and uh, people like uh, Brett Draper. Exactly. Well, in about 90 seconds, you guys have got time to talk about gifts for good gardeners if you're out this weekend looking for something to give someone that you love. Brett, somebody comes in and says, I've got to give, it's a good gardener. I've got to give something to a good gardener. And I want a, a, a garden product for one and a plant for another. So, first of all, a good garden product. I think a good garden product would be a nice pair of secateurs, John. And you can always, if they've got a good pair of secateurs, maybe look at getting a pouch to put it in so they can carry it around in the garden nicely safely. Yes, I think that would be absolutely brilliant because you just need your secateurs every weekend for different purposes So, and putting them in a pouch so you don't lose it. Where did I put the secateurs? Okay, that's the product. What about a plant? Well, plants, um, it depends if it's indoor or outdoor. If it's an indoor plant, there's a whole variety of of lovely indoor plants there. Some of your calathea varieties are absolutely spectacular as foliage plants, very colourful in their foliage. Um, But they do, if it's a good gardener, they're a good plant for a good gardener because they do need a nice warm position inside if it's an outside sort of plant you could look at using some of your um, geraniums your big series geraniums which i think are just spectacular they look great in a planter box or even in a hanging basket they look spectacular can i add mine of course a begonia magniflora oh lovely yes and they have got the potential to flower in sun and shade they're what i'd call one of the newer wow plants and i was given a whole tray of begonia magnifolis for Christmas. Lovely. (laughs) Well, to you, John Lamb, thank you for everything this year and Merry Christmas to you and to you, Brett Draper, also. Merry Christmas to everybody that's listening. Hope you have a wonderful weekend. Um, And I guess we're going to talk about gardening next week, but at a new time of 8 o'clock. Eight so o'clock. stay tuned. Eight o'clock Eight from o'clock next for week. Talk Back Gardening. We go back to where it all started, but I'll say until next week, good gardening.